Uh, several years ago, when my kids were much younger, I took them to the zoo, uh, my, the John Ball Zoo here in town. My wife and I have four boys, and so I was giving her a little bit of a break. I took them to the zoo by myself. And so my kids, for whatever reason, whenever we would go to the John Ball Zoo, before we could go in and see the animals, they had to go climb this one tree that was there. There's this tree there at the John Ball Zoo. I assume it's still there. And every time they would go climb it, I bet you have, some of your kids have climbed the exact same tree if you've been there. And so in this particular uh, time, all four of my boys climbed up the tree and John, my youngest son, again, this is several years ago when he was quite a bit younger, he wants to climb up with his brothers as far as he can go. So he climbs up the tree as far as they go. The problem was they all came down the tree and then when he turned around to try to come down the tree, he can't quite make you know the next branch or whatever. And so he gets stuck then he gets scared and then he just starts crying, right? I mean, he's just, he's just, tears are just streaming down his face and he's crying and he starts to yell after him. He's like, dad, dad, you know? And so I did in that moment what I think any good father would do. I grabbed my phone and I immediately began to take pictures of him stuck up in the tree. He was so adorable. Oh man, went crying and sad, you know, stuck in the tree like that. In fact, he's gonna kill me for this, but here is one of the pictures I took of him right here as he's stuck in the tree. See the tears, isn't he so cute? Oh, they're so adorable at that age when they're terrified. It's awesome. So eventually I put the phone away and I walked up next to the tree, literally right against the tree, uh, the trunk, and I lifted my arms up like this. He couldn't have been more than like a couple feet above my hands. And I'm like, okay, buddy, trust me, jump, right? Just trust me, dad's here, dad's gonna catch you, jump. And he answered me by saying, no! <laughs> and I was like, trust me, I'm right here, dad's gonna catch you, jump. No, and so we go back and forth, trust me, no, trust me, no, trust me, no, until finally, here, here's the line that he said, and here's what, what made this moment memorable for me, other than the picture. Uh, what he said was, he said, no, dad, I trust you from right here. That was his line. I trust you from right here, dad. Which of course is ridiculous, right? We all know that. There's no way he can trust me from right here by staying in the tree branch. The only way he can really trust me is to jump, right? So the mistake he's making in his head is that he actually believes somehow that the tree branch that he's clinging to right now is somehow more safe, more secure than jumping into his father's arms. That's the error he's making. So we went back and forth, went back and forth, and finally there was that moment. I mean, I'll never forget, he kind of gets to the very edge of the branch. He's still holding on with one hand, and finally, like, he, he lets go with that one hand, and he just jumps, arms out, straight toward me. And I almost caught him. <laughs> like, this close. It's a really beautiful moment in our relationship. He's going to be in therapy for a while for that one. Um, Here's the question I want to ask. Do we, do we ever say this same line to God? I trust you from right here. Yeah, I trust you. I, I generally, you know, in my life, I trust you, but I, I want to trust you from right here. <laughs> when, when you think about the areas of our lives where Jesus invites us to just step into obedience with him, to let go of the branch and just jump, um, maybe it's in the area of finances, we know that God calls us as he increases our income, as he brings income, we're invited to discipline ourselves to set aside the first 10% of our income and return it back to God. It's the biblical principle of tithing that we've talked about before. 
So we're invited into this kind of faith journey. We're invited to trust God in that area of our lives. But what happens is, you know, the money gets tied or we get toward the end of the month and it's like, man, I don't know how we're going to make it if, if we do this. And so we say to God, you know, I, I trust you from right here. It's not that I don't trust you. It's just, I, I'm going to trust you from right here. That's where I'm going to stay. Maybe it's with a sin issue in your life. Maybe it's an addiction Maybe it's a relationship. And so instead of honoring God first and putting him first in that, that relationship and uh, committing to you know, sexual purity in a relationship or whatever, maybe we say, you know, I'm, I'm, I trust you, but I trust you from right here. I'm gonna hang out right here. I'm gonna trust you right from this spot right here. Or maybe it's when you think about your job or, or your work, the thing that you do the other six days of the week. A lot of times we say, God, I'll trust you on Sundays, right? And it feels great to all gather together on Sundays. But what about the other six days of the week? What does it mean to actually live out our faith in our work or in our school, where, the places where we find ourselves? Do, do we sometimes just say to God, I trust you, but I, I, I want to stay right here. I want to trust you from right here. What's amazing is that obedience is easy when there's no risk involved, right? If you're just joining us, what we've been doing over the last few weeks is we're following Jesus through the gospel of Mark. And every week we're just looking at the next chunk of scripture and we're, we're listening in, we're walking with the disciples, we're following along after Jesus. And every week we're kind of inviting everyone to kind of say, okay, where does this intersect my life? Where do I find myself in the story? And so up to this point in the story, following Jesus has, has been a powerful move. Jesus is becoming bigger and bigger and bigger. But what happens in chapter six of Mark, which is where we are today, Jesus begins to turn up the heat on what it means to risk, to be obedient even in the midst of risk. And so up to this point, the disciples have had relatively no risk. I mean, it hasn't been that risky to follow Jesus, but there's a series of stories now that we're gonna look at where Jesus just keeps turning up the heat. Following him now is going to begin to be a risk for people to be involved in. So let's take a look. This is Mark 6, starting in verse 6 says, then Jesus went from village to village, teaching the people. And he called his 12 disciples together and began sending them out two by two, giving them authority to cast out evil spirits. He told them to take nothing for their journey except a walking stick, no food, no traveler's bag, no money. He allowed them to wear sandals, but not to take a change of clothes. Now, what's interesting about this moment is what Jesus is doing is, is actually a very familiar pattern in the ancient world at this time. If you had an important message that needed to be delivered, especially if, from like a king, if it was a political message, what you would do is you would send out heralds to go throughout the land and you would always send them out two by two throughout the land to announce a message. So think, this is not, you know, our days. This is before electronic media of any kind. And so if you had an urgent message, two by two, heralds would be sent out. The reason it had to be two by two is because in that world, they kind of believed that the message had to be validated by one other person. So if one person ran through with some, some information, you wouldn't necessarily believe it. There had to be a second person to validate that that was actually true. And so, you know, if a king is like, okay, we're under attack on the Western side of, of our border, then, you know, they, he would send heralds out two by two to announce to the people, get ready, prepare yourselves. There's an attack coming, that sort of thing. So Jesus follows this pattern and he sends out his disciples two by two with the gospel message. The message to repent of your sins and to trust and put your faith in God. And he gives them authority to cast out evil spirits. 
But here's where Jesus changes it. Here's where he did something different than what would have been the familiar pattern of that time for heralds. He sends them out with nothing. Literally, he he says, don't take a bag. Don't take an extra change of clothes. Literally just walk out the door with whatever you've got, like the clothes on your back with your sandals on your feet and just go. And so what he's saying is you're gonna go into all these places. You're gonna keep going from town to town and every place you go, you're gonna have to trust God day by day to provide for you. And essentially you're gonna have to trust in people's generosity to you. So hopefully this message, as you go and you're, you're preparing, hopefully this message is opening people's hearts and people are being generous and supporting you. That's how this message is gonna go forward. And so let's take a look at what happens as the disciples go out to do that. So the disciples went out telling everyone they met to repent of their sins and turn to God. And they cast out many demons and healed many sick people, anointing them with olive oil. So they go out and God moves in this powerful way. Go ahead to that next slide if you could. Here's what I want you to see. Going out two by two was risky, but the 12 were obedient. It was a risky thing to go out like this, two two by two with no provision at all, but they were obedient and that's why they got to see the miracle. That's why they got to see God move in their midst and all these people turn and people being healed and demons being cast out because they were obedient. They didn't just say, God, I'm gonna trust you from right here. That wasn't an option. As Jesus continues to turn up the heat, it wasn't an option. There was risk involved to actually going out and doing this. The very next story that happens uh, in chapter six is verses 14 through 29, John the Baptist. If you remember John the Baptist, Mark's gospel begins with John the Baptist going forward, preparing the way for Jesus. And uh, he begins with the kind of the first message and then Jesus comes along on the scene. And so he's sort of the originator of this movement that's happening. And John the Baptist has been put in prison and news starts to get around that he's been executed. Herod Antipas, the king of this area in Galilee, has executed John in prison. He's decapitated him. He's cut his head off. And here's what the text says is the reason why. It says, For Herod had sent soldiers to arrest and imprison John as a favor to Herodias. She had been his brother Philip's wife, but Herod had married her. John had been telling Herod, it is against God's law for you to marry your brother's wife. So Herodias bore a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. So essentially what happens is John spoke the truth to the person who is in power. He speaks out, he says, hey, this affair that you're having here, this is your brother's wife, that's not okay. And so as a result, Herodias has uh, Herod imprison John, and then eventually she gets her way. She manages to manipulate Herod Antipas into actually executing and killing John while he's in prison. Here's what I want you to see here. Speaking the truth to power was risky, but John was obedient. It was risky to speak. It's always risky to speak the truth to power, isn't it? But John was obedient to do that. Here's why that's significant. Keep in mind, the disciples are being sent out two by two, right? We just read that. So you're going out two by, you're, and you're just hoping every day that you're, God's gonna meet your needs. And you gotta believe these disciples as they're going out, they heard the news of this. They heard the news that their buddy John had just been executed in prison. So if you're one of those disciples, you're asking yourself, am I next? Is that my fate? I'm going out, I'm speaking the truth. I'm trusting God every day. Is, is this where this story is headed for me too? 
And, and so Jesus just keeps kind of turning the heat up on what it means to be obedient and keep following him to the next place. Now, these stories build up to the next moment. This is kind of the high point of the uh, chapter six of Mark's gospel. There's another large crowd that gathers together to begin hearing Jesus teach. And verse 35, it says, late in the afternoon, his disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the nearby farms and villages and buy something to eat. But Jesus said, you feed them. (laughs) Isn't that great? Jesus, you got to believe Jesus knew what he was capable of. He knew he could feed all these people. He knew he could do something. But again, he just turns the heat up on the risk factor of what it meant to follow him. And he just says, you feed them. You feed all these people that have come. With what, they asked. We'd have to work for months to earn enough money to buy food for all these people. See, the disciples are still thinking, "Uh, we've got to somehow provide the food. We've literally, it's going to come from our talent, our abilities, our resources. How much bread do you have? Jesus asked. Go and find out. They came back and reported, we have five loaves of bread and two fish. So what Jesus instructs them to do is go through the crowd and ask who has some food. In another gospel account of this same story, there's a little boy who's there with a sack lunch and he's the one who has the five loaves of bread and two fish. In Mark's gospel, he doesn't say exactly who, but imagine you're, you're a part of this crowd, okay? Imagine you're there, it's getting late, everybody's getting hungry, everybody's getting tired, and suddenly the disciples come through and they're like, hey, does anybody have some food they'd like to offer up to share? And you've got your sack lunch. What do you do in that moment? No, I don't know. I don't, you have any food? I don't know. It's a scarcity mindset kicks in, right? For any of us, that's human nature. Everybody's hungry. I'm one of the people who has food. I'm going to, I'm going to hang on to that. It's that belief that if I just hang on to the tree branch, it's actually going to be safer and more secure than actually jumping You imagine being in that crowd and the disciples say, offer this up, give this up so that Jesus can do something for it. I bet you know what happens next in this story. Even if you didn't grow up in church, I bet you know how it goes from here. What Jesus does, I love Mark's account of it. He uses these four verbs to describe the miraculous moment that happens next. It says Jesus takes what the four, the five loaves of bread and the two fish. So Jesus doesn't make bread and fish. He doesn't sort of miraculously create it. He just takes what was offered up. And then it says he takes it, he breaks it, he blesses it, and then he gives it. And you've probably heard the miracle of the story, even if you've never read it in the text. As he's giving it, it's multiplied and multiplied and multiplied until all 5,000 people are fed by this food. Those four verbs, takes, breaks, blesses, and gives, are so important in this text because this moment, this feeding of the 5,000 is a moment that points toward another meal. It's actually the last meal Jesus has with his disciples. On the night he's betrayed, Jesus sits down for what we call the Last Supper. If you grew up in Catholic environment, you probably heard it called the Eucharist or maybe the Lord's Supper. Um, We call it communion is how we refer to it. And it's this sacred meal that we celebrate together. We're gonna be celebrating in a couple weeks and then again on Good Friday together, where basically Jesus sits down and Mark's gospel, it's the same four verbs are used. He takes bread, he breaks it, he blesses it and he gives it. The only difference is in this final meal that Jesus had with his disciples, he doesn't take something that someone else offered and take it and break it, it's himself. 
He, he is the bread. He is what's broken and blessed and given out so that we can have life. It's a, it's a picture of the cross, the picture of the gospel of what Jesus did for us. And so in this moment, it, it foreshadows where things were going. Here, here's again what I want you to see from this. Giving your food was risky. Trying to feed this crowd, asking people to give in the scarcity, out of a scarcity mindset, will you just turn that around and give whatever food you have? That was risky, but they were obedient. And because of that, they got to see the miracle. They got to see God move powerfully on their behalf. Here's the point. Here's what I'm trying to tell you here. God is actually not that impressed with risk-taking. You know, I think we think that a lot of times. I think we think that God is like impressed with some risk-taking. People will say like, man, I, I just think I got to like leave home and just go to Africa, go to Ukro, Ethiopia or something, or maybe it's uh, some dramatic risk. I need to sell all my possessions and just leave, or I need to make this wild move, leave my job or my career and go make this huge move. I actually don't think that a lot of times that's what God is asking us to do. I don't think he's that impressed with risk-taking for risk-taking sake. What God is impressed with is obedience, even when it's risky. Do you see the difference? It's not risk-taking that he's impressed with. It's imp he, what he's impressed with is obedience. Faithful, daily, everyday decisions, just with what's right in front of us, the next step, the next step. He's impressed with obedience in our lives, even when it happens to be risky. We have this uh, uh, old song that we sing in the church. I actually didn't hear, I didn't grow up in the church, so I didn't hear it until I was in my teen years, but I bet you a lot of you heard it. The song goes, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. You know this song, right? You've, you've, many of you in this room, you're nodding, you know this song. The problem with, with that song is it's absolutely terrible theology. It's wrong. That's not true. There is another way. It's called obey, and then you learn how to trust. It's called, a lot of times, the way we actually learned how to feel a sense of trust, to feel a sense of faith in Jesus, is we have to actually obey what's right in front of us. What, what it was actually what God invites us to do is just to be obedient in everyday kind of decisions, step by step by step, and that's actually what builds the trust that allows us to trust God with bigger things and bigger things and bigger things in our lives. We have to obey, and then we learn how to trust him. What he wants is daily obedience, and oftentimes daily obedience is actually the most risky thing we can do. Being just, living a life of just faithful obedience day in, day out is oftentimes the most risky thing any of us could do with our lives. This is, uh, Douglas MacArthur, famous American general, who said, there is no security on this earth. There is only opportunity. I love that. I think he's right about that. He's, there's no security on this earth. That's an illusion there is only opportunity, the next opportunity to jump. The lie we believe is that the tree branch we're hanging on to right now is somehow safe, that it's somehow more secure, but there is no security on this earth. There's just the opportunity, the next opportunity to jump and to trust Jesus with our lives and just to jump into his arms. Our lives, if you think about it, in America especially, our lives are predicated on safety. Safety is our highest value. And so there are these lies that we believe. We, we believe the lie that if we just accumulate enough money, we will be safe. 
Not if I accumulate enough money, I'll be happy. I mean, there are some people who are dumb enough to believe that. I think there are some people who actually still believe, oh yeah, if I just get enough money, then I'll be happy. But I think most of us are smarter than that. Most of us, if you've lived enough years, you figured out, man, just because you have money doesn't actually mean you're gonna be happy, but safer? Oh, we believe that 100%. The more money I accumulate, the more I have, the safer I will be. We believe it when it comes to our relationships. The more I compromise sexually in my dating relationship, the safer my relationship is going to be. We believe that, right? Because if I actually honor God first, if I put him first in this relationship, they might leave. Yeah, they might. But, but the problem with that is if you actually honor God and put him first, he actually, the, the, we are believing that if you just hang on to that tree branch, that's going to be safer and more secure than jumping and trusting him. But when we actually put him first in those relationships, he might actually be able to bless us with a future marriage, a future relationship that would be far better than anything that we could ever experience, that we could ever even imagine. But that's what he invites us to do. Maybe it's when it's in the area of our work, a lot of times we'll believe the lie that, man, if I just keep quiet about my faith, if I just don't live out my faith or say anything at work, I'll be safe. I'll be safer. But then inevitably a moment comes when we're in, you know, some decisions being made or something's happening in the company or wherever it is that we work where we know we're being asked to compromise our values. And what are you going to say when that moment comes? Jesus just keeps saying again and again, you can't trust me from right here. It doesn't work that way. At some point, you have to jump. And oftentimes, the most risky thing we can do is just being obedient in those day-to-day, today, faithful, you know, areas of our lives. Um, as I think about my own life and where this kind of intersected my life recently, a few years ago, uh, my, Carrie and I, we just began sensing just promptings from the Holy Spirit, just conversation after conversation with different people, moments that happened that led us to believe that God was calling us to become uh, foster care licensed. Um, and we have four biological children and we have our hands full with kids. So we, ne- we didn't really feel called to adopt a child, but we felt called to become licensed and just to run toward kids in the foster system right now as a family. And to just sort of offer that up and just say, okay, Lord, what would you want to do through, through that and through our family? And so we went through the process. We got foster uh, licensed and then we began doing respite care for a few different families who had um, a foster child. And there was a couple times where we took, uh, you know, a child just for like overnight or just kind of in a, in a pinch moment. And then there came this opportunity. There was a, a little four-year-old boy who had been removed from his parents' um, custody. They were homeless, actually. And so uh, he was removed from their custody, and it was clear that there was going to be a long, like about a year-long battle to try to determine parent rights. And so we just felt like God was calling us to just jump and say yes. And so we said, yes, we'll, we'll take him into our home. And we made this commitment uh, to have this little boy in our family, part of our home, during what would be like, I would think, the worst year of his life. And so he came and began to live with us in our home. And he had all these medical issues because of neglect and some abuse and some things that had happened to him. He had all these appointments and doctor's appointments. And so very quickly, he's, there's all this money that we're having to spend having him in our house. And we're watching the bank account decline and decline and go down. By the way, if you sign up to become a foster parent because you're thinking about the government check you get from that, it'll help you out, make you rich. You're an idiot if you think that. It just blows my mind that people think that. 
I did the math, just so you know. Here's what the government stipend for us as a family came out to, 71 cents an hour. That's what it came out to. If you actually did the hours and and the, the amount of money we got, 71 cents an hour is what we got. He cost us way more than we got in money to actually take care of him. We were shelling out money left and right for all these issues and all these needs that he had. And so as, as time went on, about six months into that year-long commitment, was that, that was the year that I was diagnosed with cancer. And so suddenly, out of the blue, we didn't know, we didn't see that coming. Suddenly, there are all these medical bills for tests and treatments and bone marrow biopsy and all this different crazy stuff. And so we're like, how do we pay these bills? And we're watching the bank account, our savings is going down, 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 down. And so in the midst of that, in the midst of all the, the stress and the strain of that, uh, I said, I began to talk to Carrie and I, I began to say, what would it look like for us just to bail out of our commitment here? What would it look like to just say no to the commitment we made to this little boy and just send him back to the agency, be another shift and another change during this really difficult time of his life? And I'm not proud to admit that that was my solution, but to me that felt safer like it wasn't my, I didn't know I was going to get cancer. I didn't know that we were going to have to be dealing with all this. And it just felt like this is just going to be a safer thing to do if we just send him back. We just don't need to be dealing with all this right now. And my wife, who gets the credit for this, Carrie at so many different points in our marriage has had faith in moments where I just have not. And, I, and I've needed to borrow her faith. And she, in that moment, she just had faith and she, we just began to pray about it together and, and try to consider it. And so finally we decided, we decided, really it was her that, you know, a lot of it decided to just say, no, we feel like God called us to this. He knew about the cancer. He knew what was coming. He, we believe he called us to it. So we decided to just be obedient in the midst of that and not break that whole cycle and not send him back and just trust, even though to me, that felt like the riskiest thing we could possibly do. One year later, two things happened. First of all, one year later, we got to sit in a courtroom and we got to watch our foster son be adopted into his forever family, which was an incredible thing to be able to witness. God brought this couple in just the right time and they were in this place and he lives today in Hudsonville. Um, God has just done an incredible thing in his life and through that family. We get to see them still every once in a while and, and connect with him and just it blows my mind just how God moved in at just the right moment in that. The second thing that happened, we got to the end of that year and we sat down to do our taxes. And I cannot explain this to you, but when we sat down to do our our taxes, what we realized was that in that year, that year where I was diagnosed with cancer and we had all the medical bills and we had uh, Evan in our home, somehow we managed to give away more money in that year than we ever had in any year in our marriage previously. I can't explain that. And not just because I'm terrible at math, which I am. I can't explain that because to me, that's supernatural. I have no idea how that happened, but it happened. So here's, here's what I'm learning. And it, it, I've had to learn it again and again and again. What I'm learning is that I tend to overestimate the value of what I have. And I tend to underestimate the value of what God can do through me when I let go of the tree branch and just jump. And it terrifies me to tell you guys that because you know what I know is gonna happen as soon as I share that and say that? I know I'm gonna get the next opportunity to jump coming real soon. It's coming. I don't know what it's gonna be. I never know what it's gonna be, but it's coming. 
There's going to be a ne- the next moment, the next moment for me to jump the second I do that. And, and what we think, we believe this lie that somehow it's more secure, it's more safe to stand here and hang on to this tree branch than to actually be obedient in what God calls us to do and jump and risk it. And oftentimes when we jump and risk it, that's when we see God move in our lives. That's when he builds trust and builds faith in us. That's when we see him do the most powerful things in our lives, but you have to jump. Jesus just keeps turning up the heat on the risk factor. He's not impressed with risk-taking, okay? Don't hear that. He's impressed with obedience even when it's risky in our lives. So so as we turn this toward ourselves, the the question we need to ask is, where do you need to jump? Where is it for you right now? Where is God calling you to jump? There's some area of your life right now where you know you need to take that step and you need to trust Jesus. Jesus says, you can't trust me and stay where you are. It doesn't work that way. Maybe it's in the area of of finances somehow. Maybe you've tried to practice tithing. Maybe you've stepped into that. Maybe you've tried and maybe you failed. And so you felt like, man, I I did that already. I'm not going to try it again. What does it mean to trust God? What does it mean to jump in that area, to begin to lean into that? Maybe it's a relationship in your life. Keeping your relationship sexually pure feels like a huge risk. To put God first in our relationships, put God first in our marriage, they could leave you. They could, yeah, they could, you know, not go with you in that. Or God could bless you. And by the way, if you've got somebody who would leave you, if you actually put God first in your relationship, good luck trying to make them follow God and put God first in your relationship after you're married. It doesn't work that way. So what we're invited to do is just to keep jumping. Maybe for you, it's, What does it mean to trust God and jump when it comes to your work? The other six days of the week, to not just follow Jesus on Sunday, but to say the other six days of the week, what does it mean for me to actually speak out about my faith, to begin to jump when it comes to decisions and opportunities to live my faith out at work or at school? Saw that happen recently in um, the life, I'll close with this story, life of a family in our church. Uh, There's a guy named Paul who comes to Frontline. He's been coming for several years now. When Paul first started coming to Frontline, he was kind of coming because I think, you know, some people expected him to or wanted him to, but he didn't really want to be here. He would say, uh, he, he would say that that was kind of where he was at. But slowly God began to get a hold of his heart and Jesus began to become the center of his life. And he began to, to just trust Jesus more and more and more. And, and before long, Jesus began to become the center of his family. It changed his heart. Cha- Jesus changed the way he was a father, changed the way he was a husband. I actually got to be there with Paul and his wife as he recommitted his vows to his wife. This powerful legacy that got set up in front of his kids with his wife on that day. From there, he just continued to follow Jesus. And before long, he began to live out uh, his faith at work, began to just really pursue Jesus in his job and his work. And so he and some, a couple other guys from his work began to start a Bible study at his work. So like in the morning, they just gather together to have a Bible study and they'd invite other guys into that. There's a, a guy that began uh, working there at his place of employment, a 24-year-old guy named Michael. And a few couple years before this, Michael had been homeless. 
And this job even was like a major step up for, for Michael. And so they invited Michael to sit down and do the Bible study. And they began talking with him. And Paul began to mentor Michael. And he just began to pour into his life and to just encourage him and what it meant to follow Jesus. And then at Christmas, just, uh, just this past Christmas, Paul invited Michael to come to one of our Christmas services. And Paul went up with Michael as Michael walked through the door and gave his life fully to Jesus. The best part was a few weeks later, just our last baptism we had on the 20th anniversary, uh, Michael got up here and, and got baptized. And as Michael got up and he got into the tank, Paul gets up here and a, and a bunch of guys from work come up here and they just gather around this tank and they just celebrate and go crazy as Michael comes up out of the baptismal. That is powerful to me. Because sometimes when Jesus asks us to jump and to trust him, it may not just be your life that's on the line. It might actually be somebody else's life that's on the line. You can't trust him from right here. There is no security in this world. There is only opportunity. There's only opportunity to say yes to the next one. And so Jesus, this morning, we say yes. We're not just gonna trust you from right here. We're not just gonna believe the lie that the tree branch we're hanging onto is somehow the most secure and safe place. We confront that lie this morning in the name of Jesus and we say, Lord, we want to jump. And not just jump once, not just jump with what's in front of us right now, but we wanna keep jumping. Maybe for some of us this morning, we've jumped in the past, but it's been a while. So God, we keep jumping. We keep saying yes to whatever you put in front of us because we want to see the miracle. We want to see your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We wanna be a part of what you're doing here on this earth. And we only get to see that as we say yes and jump. And so God, would you do it? Would you do what only you can do in our lives as we trust you, as we put you first? As hard as it is, as risky as it is, that's what we wanna be. Because we know that when we jump, you will catch us because that's who you are. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen.